0: a career in academic fraud. It happened when I was in 10th grade, my sophomore year at Aiken High School. It was biology class. Um, it was a mister, I think it began with an S, but it could have began with a B. At any rate, there were terms and vocabulary that were due every week. And early in the year, uh, I thought, along with a friend of my mine, it might be a time-saving device to take a piece of carbon paper and stick it between two sheets of notebook paper. I wrote the terms and definitions once, and like magic, two students had completed their work. The only problem, and just so we're clear, I actually handed in my work. It was my work that I handed in. It's just that someone else handed in my work. Uh, The only problem is we were invited after class to provide an explanation for the similarities between the two assignments. I do remember saying, well, why don't you... Tell me what you think happened. (laughs) This is such a punk. I was such a jerk. Huh? One year ago, Bicycling Magazine did an article about a specialized Venge, okay? The Venge is a uh, um, oh, it's a sweet, sweet bike frame. Um, it's, it's a bike that it, the build starts at about 5500 bucks. And some of you might say, well, why in the world would you pay $5,500 for something that doesn't have a motor on it? Uh, I can offer that as an explanation. You are the motor for it. At any rate, the problem with this Venge is that it didn't cost $5,500. The frame itself was purchased for five hundred. dollars You might think, how can you get a $5,500 bike for 500 bucks? It was ordered from an online company, which represented a Chinese firm. And all of a sudden, you're like, aha. When the individual who purchased the bike frame, the problem started almost immediately. Nothing fit. It was a carbon counterfeit copy, a carbon copy. At times, it can be difficult to identify a copy. At other times, it's very easy to realize that something is attempting to pull something off. It's the fake versus the real. It is pretending versus existing in reality. We find ourselves 1035, verse 11, chapter 13 of the book of Revelation. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is a number of a man, and his number is six, six, six. Perhaps the most well-known verse in the entire Bible, but for all the wrong reasons. Beast number two, okay? So we have the dragon, right, which is identified as Satan. We have beast number one, and now we have beast number two. And what we have with the dragon, beast number one, and beast number two is a counterfeit of a true trinity. N.T. Wright makes the observation that at this time in church history, the first century, you have Rome and the Caesars specifically, not Caesar salad with anchovies and whatnot on it, but the Caesars, the rulers, who are really making waves, all right? There's a lot of hubris, there's a lot of arrogance, there's a lot of deity. They are thinking they are gods, right? And in towns like Ephesus, you have small little factions of Caesar worshipers, people who are... The political extension of the Roman government centered in Rome, enforcing the dictates, enforcing the strictures that the Roman government places upon the people. And so for the first century reader, they would have looked at this and they said, hey, we understand the dragon is Satan, that makes sense to us. And this first beast, it makes sense to us that it would be Caesar. And the second beast is kind of this local institution that's causing a lot of pain in our arms, in our bodies, in our homes. It may invite the same question as we had regarding beast number one. Is beast number one a person? Is it an institution? Is beast number two a subordinate person, a subordinate institution? Or is, being, or is what being described is the reality that there are human forms of government throughout the ages that have sought to impress, but are in reality no substitution for the kingdom of God? Beale in his commentary, says, False prophets lead people to worship the state versus worshiping God. The reality is the book of Revelation made sense in the first century, and it makes sense today because we see the same realities going on. We see governments, we see entities, we see individuals that attempt to offer a substitution for the kingdom of God. And then on top of that substitution, there's a fake substitution of the fake thing. Check it out. And by the signs that it was allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image. Okay, so they're making an image of the beast that was wounded, beast number one. So they're making a fake of the fake. They're making a counterfeit of the counterfeit. It's a fake version of something that is trying to be something that is not, that it is not. This image, okay, not the real beast, the image itself is described in these crazy terms like it can cause things to happen and it almost seems to come alive. And we know in the first century there were charlatans going around who would make statutes speak and they would make things happen that would fool the townspeople, that would engender their support have great sway over the individuals. Think of the freak shows, uh, the side shows that used to happen in fairs in the United States of America in the 1800s when you'd see a three-headed this or a four-legged that or something like this or a hair like this, okay? It's that kind of reality. But past all of the dragons and the beast number one and the beast number two and the image of beast number one that really isn't real but a counterfeit of the real that is really another counterfeit, we have this simple reality. people putting their trust, people following something other than God. The core of what is being discussed in chapter 3 is this powerful idolatry. And we might do ourselves well to ask the question, what are the counterfeit gods that we worship? oh, sure, we wouldn't fall for the crying statute. I get that. But what are the counterfeit gods that we worship? What we have, what we do. my career. I love my career. I love my job. I love what I do. My career has taken me from working in one church to another church, and now right here I'm working at Timberwood Church. I love my career. I'm not speaking against careers, but careers can be a powerful form of idolatry. I'm not saying we shouldn't be active in the marketplace. I'm not saying that if you're a business owner, you shouldn't continue to own the business and provide economic advantage for your community and for the people that work for you. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying it's so easy for our careers to be the thing that we worship, that we elevate our career above everything else or certainly above God. The things that we own. I had this buddy once who... um, down in Prior Lake. Uh, he is successful, okay? Pr- pretty successful. Not stupidly successful, but, but, a, but a successful guy. And we're, we're in his home and we're hanging out. It's a small group. And the home was big enough that we had a small group of like 25, 30 people. We actually broke into two smaller groups within the one home. And, and we have this great kitchen and all this good food. And it's just a great time. And, and, and we're talking about stuff. Because it's amazing how quickly stuff can get in the way of following God. And he's like, you know, I I got to the point where I realized I had to come clean on some of this stuff. And so the check in him was, am I willing to give it away? And he said, you know, if someone were to say, if God were to ask me to give away my home right now, I'd be like, here's the deed. Done. Take it. Now I know what you're thinking. And I didn't ask him for the deed. The stuff that we have, is it more important than anything else? Would we give it up? Would we give it away? Maybe not the first boat, but the third boat? Would we be willing to give away the third boat? I'm not saying that if you come over to my house that I'd be willing to hand over the deed, but shouldn't I be willing to? I'm not trying to lay anything ill-fitting on us. I'm not trying to make Russ's experience your obligation. But the core of what is being discussed today is a powerful idolatry. When something is elevated above the rightful place of the true God. And for some of us, it might be our careers. For some of us, it might be our family. For some of us, it might be getting ahead, our wealth, our possessions. For some of us, it might be the pursuit Of just feeling good. What are the counterfeit gods that we worship? There's also an economic reality that's going on in the first century. The beast was allowed to give image to, it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause worship, might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. 16, it also causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. Now we know, in a place like Ephesus in the first century, because we have recorded history, if you were a follower of Jesus Christ and you didn't worship Caesar, it was an ugly place in which to find yourself. To not worship Caesar, if that was discovered by the right people, it could result in your death. It could result in economic ostracism. Now, this is really a faraway concept for us in Western Christianity because really, truthfully, honestly, even though some might disagree and some might see an encroachment, we really enjoy the favor of the government. And really, Christians have really enjoyed, especially Western Christians, have enjoyed the favor of the government since about 300 But that was not the reality in the first century. And in other places of the world, outside of Western Christianity, it's not the reality today that to be a follower of Jesus Christ in the first century in Ephesus, unwilling to worship Caesar, could result in your death. Could result in you having an economic reality that was less than favorable. And we have this strong theme That being a follower of Jesus Christ may mean suffering. It's not an easy topic to talk about. We insulate ourselves from suffering. But are we prepared to suffer? Would we be willing to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ? Would we be willing to go hungry? to suffer economic hardship, would we be willing to lose our wealth, lose our homes, lose our businesses for the cause of Christ? How about our health? Clearly overriding, the biblical reader would know there's this story of Daniel... Rather, in the book of Daniel, in which three of his buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were were in a position like this and were more than willing to give up their lives in order that they might worship the true God. What would you be willing to lose in order to follow Christ? the last verse the one we know so well this calls for understanding let the one who has understanding this calls for wisdom rather let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast for it is the number of a man and his number is 666 now we've talked about this before but there are two marks in the book of revelation this is the one that gets the more more press but not more press that we've given it. We've attempted here at Timberwood Church to say, no, there's two marks in the book of Revelation. The most important mark is the mark that gets mentioned over and over and over and over again, and that's the mark of God on the faithful followers of Jesus Christ. But this second mark, okay, because it seems to be somewhat popular, we should probably chat about it. Now, to be sure, well, let's just jump into it. Numbers in the book of Revelation almost are always symbols. So 144,000, 12 times 12, um, 7. They're not necessarily numbers in a mathematical, numerical sense. They're numbers that represent something else. So the number 7 specifically is a number of perfection. Now, to be sure, we don't know exactly why the number 7 is a number of perfection. God rests on the seventh day. Creation story happens in seven days. Seven repeats itself throughout the Bible. It's the number of perfection. Theologians will say it's a number of perfection. It's a perfect number in God's eyes. But why exactly? It's one of the enduring mysteries of the Bible. But if seven is perfect then six isn't being a case of one less than seven. It's being a case of not seven. And if seven is perfect, six is not perfect. We also know that in the Bible, when you repeat something, you emphasize it. So for instance, if you call something holy, okay, all well and good. But if you say holy, 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 Like we find in Isaiah chapter 6, you've emphasized something. You've repeated it. You put an additional sort of exclamation point on it. And so here we have the number 6, not a number but a symbol that is not perfect, repeated. So we have a repetition of imperfection. We have an imperfect trinity. We have something that probably is not a literal mark. It's probably not a tattoo. Although I would be the first to say if someone would come up to you and say, hey, I want to put a tattoo on your body. And, and you're like, well, what do you want to do? Well, I want to put six sets on your right hand. I'd pass. I'd, I'd pass. I'd, I'd let that one go. But it's less about a literal mark And more about being identified with, being loyal to a counterfeit God. Less about something that is actually on my forehead. And more about the condition of my heart and being identified with the realities of something that is not of God, that is less than God, that is less than God would want. That in its core can never be God because it is not perfect. The things that get copied in life are the things that have value a Hermé bag, a Louis Vuitton bag, the street corner Rolex. In the bike industry, prestigious brands like Pinarello and Specialized and Zip, these are things because they are signature names. Something that is valuable tends to get copied. Well, maybe not in the case of my vocab sheet. It wasn't that, although I got all right on the sheet, just so we're clear. It is the difference between being fake and being real. It is the difference between pretending and living in reality and And it is the challenge that the text offers us today to examine, to wonder what are the counterfeit gods that we worship? Do we worship the state? Do we worship what we have? Do we worship our careers, or do we worship the one true God? Understanding that that may mean we need to suffer, and understanding. That in the wake of that, there is a promise for those who persevere. A promise for those who are faithful to the end. I challenge our hearts with the text and invite us to examine our lives. Please pray with me. Father, I come today, and I know that some people sitting here right now are suffering. I know for some the thought of tomorrow brings terror to our hearts. Father, for those of us that are in that condition, speak to our souls. Comfort our realities. Grant us peace as we wrestle with the hard things that are before us. Father, for all of us, we come. Because in this place, there is a connection with you that is unique in our lives. And we come to be challenged and we come to affirm our faith. Allow your spirit, O great God, to examine our lives and understand the counterfeit gods that we might possess. Father, thank you for this time. In Jesus' name we pray and through his spirit. Amen.